The Lead from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Largely as an outcome of our two-year global COVID pandemic, the search for purpose has become a very real and defining part of all of our careers. Perhaps explaining one reason why so many people are quitting jobs so frequently these days is owed to the fact that so many organizations have yet to take this trend seriously. And making matters worse, for appearances sake, many leaders will invoke the rhetoric of having a meaningful purpose and then fail to ensure that there's any tangible link to the behaviors they expect from their managers. And anymore, it just doesn't take very long for workers to spot this kind of insincerity and lip service. And once employees realize their own desire and need for purpose can't be fulfilled where they are, well, they're naturally motivated to move on. My guest today is Harvard Business School professor Ron J. Gulati. And in his new book, Deep Purpose, The Heart and Soul of High Performance Companies, he argues that the pursuit of profits without purpose is no longer a sustainable business model. As he rather brilliantly shows, the road to high performance for both individuals and companies now depends on deepening our connection to enduring and essential human values. As Ranjay writes, quote, pursuing a purpose as a company means arriving at a clear understanding of what you were put on this planet to do. It helps you steer in the right direction, navigate trade-offs, and when connected to a social or personal purpose, it can inspire remarkable performance, end quote. And as Kenneth Frazier, former CEO of Merck, has said, when people feel a connection to their organization's reason for being, they come alive with a sense of purpose in their work, that their motivation, energy, and creativity blossom. So today, we're going to peel back the layers to unveil what it truly takes to cultivate a purpose-driven culture, one that enables both the company and its employees to experience its power and benefit from the growth that it can generate. And with that as an introduction, let me welcome you to the podcast, Ranjay Gulati. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure to be here with you today. Well, I'm going to tell my audience that you're doing this at 8.30 at night after a long work day. And so on behalf of all of us, I just want to tell you, thank you very, very much for even agreeing to do it this late in the day. And I really enjoyed your book. And I, I kind of wish you were there with me when I was reading it, because I was talking out loud, like, well, what about this? And what about that? So this is what I'm looking forward to having a discussion around is sort of the idea of what is purpose, but also, you know, our business is really taking it seriously. And so the very first question I have for you has to do with the very introduction of your book, where you managed to get Larry Fink who I think our audience knows is the founder and CEO of probably the world's largest asset management company, meaning he represents more investors than pretty much anybody in the world. And he is strongly urging CEOs to begin focusing not just on profit, but on purpose as well. And so you had him make this statement at the very beginning of your book. And I thought, I'm going to ask him, what's the shift he's calling for and why? 
So, Mark, thanks for your kind words about the book. You know, when you're an author writing a book, you hope somebody will read it and read it carefully like you did. So thank you for doing that. I am really grateful for that. I don't want to represent Larry Fink. So I would not want to be kind of paraphrasing what he is saying or channel him, but I'll tell you what I think he's saying in terms of my understanding of it. And I can't claim to have a monopoly on understanding him better than anybody else, but I'm going to give it a try. You know, Larry's first letter where he talked about purpose of business was really a call to business leaders to think long-term about their business. Um, As an investor or representative of investors, he's saying that, you know what, investors, not all of them, but many of them have a long-time horizon. And so you business leaders need to be managing to a longer time horizon. And one way to get you all to think about longer term is to ask yourself your purpose. Why do you exist? And once you do that and clarify that for yourself, you start to think long-term. And a corollary of that is when you think long-term, you naturally think multi-stakeholder. And so purpose leads you through long-term into a multi-stakeholder view of the world because if you're a long-term business, who doesn't care about employees? You don't care about your customers. You have to care about your communities. You have to care about the planet. It just is a question of dialing out. And I think people somehow misconstrued this saying, purpose is anything but shareholder value. And I think there's one sentence in there that may have confused some people, but I think Larry later on tried to clarify that. When he says purpose and performance, it became suddenly that was purpose is anything but performance because there's an and between those two words. It means they are mutually exclusive by inference. And so, you know, that means that purpose is anything but profit. So Larry is going, you know, woke on us. Larry was not saying that. In fact, in his current newsletter, he's, I don't even know what that means, by the way. So before I make that statement, but (laughs) you used it well. In the current newsletter, he said, stakeholder capitalism is capitalism. So, but people want to turn this into somehow it's anything but profit. And he's trying to get businesses to become socialized. And they're becoming social creatures. And so this is kind of non-economic. I think we have to understand that purpose and profit go together. Well, let me stop you and ask is because, you know, for 50 years, businesses, corporations specifically, have been operating under the assumption that their sole purpose is to make money for shareholders. And it's actually gotten worse than that in the sense that quarterly earnings have really driven organizations. So as Alec Edmonds said on this podcast many months ago, what's in my interest to invest in people or to invest in the planet when I have numbers that I've got to hit? And so my question to you is, if you've got Larry Fink who's advocating on behalf of investors saying, we've got to shift our thinking, we've got to shift our mindset, have investors embraced that? In other words, are we going to see this shift or is he just the Pied Piper for this and really doesn't have advocates for him yet? I think we are just confused. I think there's a this is a sad testimony when we start to think that, you know, businesses are only designed for delivering value over the next three months. No great business was built managing for three months. No great business was built that way. I mean, you look at Microsoft over the last decade under Satya Nadella, was Satya managing for every Uh, you know, quarter, right? Was he trying to build a business saying that, okay, let's just not worry about long-term because in the end, they're going to fire me if I don't make this quarterly numbers. 
he made his quarterly numbers too. So the idea is you build a business with an eye on the long term, but you then create short-term deliverables because short-term deliverables are an indicator of your achieving the milestones towards your long-term goals. And I think somehow we've lost sight of this basic fact. And I want to just back up also about shareholder value and so forth. I think is if you go back in time, businesses always had a multi-stakeholder view. I think what happened was there was a period of time when professional managers started to take the unfair advantage of their position as managers and extract value for themselves and put their own buddies on the boards of directors, sat on each other's boards of directors. And so you had this movement to remind managers, professional managers, that you work for the shareholder. Do not forget that. This is not your private kitty. We appointed you there to work on behalf of shareholders and you have to deliver shareholder value. That argument was taken to its logical extreme and said, okay, I work for shareholder value to the expense, nothing else matters. Then when it comes to shareholder value, it all became about kind of, okay, did I make my quarterly numbers? And I think Larry is pointing out that there are plenty of investors. Think about the percentage of money in the market that comes from institutional investors, that comes from retirees, that comes from sovereign wealth funds. That's a lot of money. And they're not buying in and out of markets, right? So we have to understand, and they are voiceless. So yes, you need to deliver. He's not giving you an easy out. I don't think anybody is saying, don't make your quarterlies and just keep talking about long term. And that hurts leaders then. You saw what happened to Emmanuel Faber at Danone. In your book. You'll have to explain that because our audience hasn't read your book yet. Emmanuel Faber at Danone missed several quarters in a row of numbers and said, I'm building for the long term. I'm focusing on social value. And at some point, the shareholder said, enough. So you can't make an excuse around saying, well, I'm really only doing long-term value, so I don't do short term. Or you look at Etsy, which is another company featured in my book. It's the large e-commerce player that does craft commerce. Under the previous CEO, you know, they had this idea that we don't make money. You know, we're about social value. We have a purpose. There you go. Purpose is equated to social value, which means not economic value, which means I don't even make any numbers, short or long run. I don't promise you anything. So we have this distortion and twisting of what is the purpose of the corporation. The purpose of the corporation is long-term success and survival and thriving for the communities in which they operate. Businesses were never created for just shareholder value. If you go back in time to the very incorporation of business in England, businesses had to have a purpose statement, which was a legally binding contract about a social value proposition that they were going to keep. They had to do something social. So we had this kind of evolution slash distortion to where now that purpose statement has become kind of optional. It's indeterminate. It's not legally binding. So we say, well, I don't need to do anything. I'm only going to focus on short. And honestly, I don't know. I've been teaching and studying business now for many decades. I don't know of any great business that was built by a leadership team that only did quarterlies and did nothing else. Yes, you do quarterlies, but you have in mind a long-term vision for the business. Well, 
you know, you make this point in your book that this is the very moment in time. So going back to something I said a moment ago, which is that, you know, we've had this 50-year belief system in business that the sole purpose of a corporation, and, and we can argue that there's nuance to that, but ultimately the purpose of a corporation is to return profits to shareholders, and we've been living that true and true for quite some time now. But in your book, you insist, and you make this very, very, very clear, that this is the, I think your language, very moment in time when company leaders must define their purpose. So why are you saying, you know, what's stopping this 50-year momentum here? Why are you making that point so strongly right now? Why now as opposed to in 2020 or 2015 or 1995? Well, a cynic might argue that I'm doing what any author would do is saying, my book is important to read now, not Uh, yesterday. Yeah. I understand. But I really believe it. I really believe what I said because let's take an example, Mark. Look at Spotify and what happened to them in the last month. Mm -hmm. You have a context in which employees are much more vocal. You have rebellions by employees, Delta Airlines, Spotify, Facebook, and I can go on Google. I can go on and on. You have customers. We're in a very different world today where Customers expect more, employees expect more, communities expect more, societies expect more. And you can see what's happening in the last week. You know, you can see how businesses are feeling the heat that they need to take a stance. That the idea that there's a separation of church and state and, you know, we business people, we are busy making money. So please don't ask us about geopolitical issues and don't ask us about human rights and don't ask us about, you know, ESG is great, but forget the S, first of all. And, you know, even the E and G, we can find a way to kind of work around. That doesn't work anymore. Workarounds, dodging, posturing. There's plenty of people who are cynical out there who see through it very quickly. You make a really wonderful point about this idea that employees are more vocal, society is more vocal, communities are more vocal, everyone's more vocal. It definitely seems like COVID shifted. It gave everyone, all constituencies, a much larger voice. And what you were referring to a second ago was the fact that there are companies that have had longstanding relationships in Russia that are just extracting themselves, and in some cases, to their financial detriment. Where did that pressure come from? So where are they feeling it from specifically? All of those constituencies, stakeholders? I would say, you know, in the current context, I can't pin down one and apportion pressure points and say who's got more clout. I would say it's all of the above. Mm -hmm. It's all of the above. And if you don't, you stand out, right? So if one company makes a stance, others feel obligated to take a stance too. But there's a larger point you're making, though, Mark, I think, is that here you have, you know, there's another, what I in my book call the dangerous phrase called win-win. And win-win is dangerous because of this belief that businesses only need to do when they can make money doing good. It's win-win, which means I'm not going to go near anything that's win-lose, which means shareholders win all the time and anybody else, you come second. Every argument gets taken to its logical conclusion. And I think what I call in the book, the messiness of purpose. I have an article in the Harvard Business Review that came out last week called The Messiness of Purpose. And I take a section from my book where I talk about walking on the razor's edge. 
this idea that, you know, life is not about only clean win-win solutions. There are win-lose situations too. And sometimes you have to decide and purpose gives you the ability to discriminate on why are you here forces you to confront what are the things you're going to do and what are the things you're not going to do. Well, going back as far, you sort of hinted at this a minute ago, as far back as Henry Ford century ago, more than a century ago, people like him built companies around compelling visions for what a company could contribute to all stakeholders. And a brand really meant something. There was real quality and reliability in a lot of that. And it seems that that era is long gone. And so I'm wondering if, just to pin down what you're talking about, if you think that we're in this sort of ricochet moment where we're all looking and saying, none of this stands up well, and we've got to hold people accountable, and we've got to live with greater trust, and we've got to live with greater accountability, and it's forcing a change in the world. Is that happening, or am I making this up? So look, I don't want to be overstating this argument, but I think we're at a watershed moment in the world as far as work is concerned. You know, COVID did something to us. The idea of a great resignation or a great reshuffle or a great rethink or a great upgrade, whatever you want to call it, is real. And the question that we have to ask ourselves then is that, look, what is going on? I think people expect more from work. They expect to be treated differently. And it's not just about more pay. Again, what's happened is look at the naive response sometimes. Oh, it's an upgrade. They just want to get paid more. So if we give them more money, they'll be happy and they'll calm down. Of course, everyone wants to get paid more, especially certain occupations that don't even pay a living wage. But I think people want money and something more. And we've spent decades studying this. People start to say, well, they want more interesting work. Okay, empower them. Yes, they do want to get empowered and they want more interesting work. And they want to be challenged and they want to learn and grow. But people increasingly are asking the purpose question for themselves. What is my purpose? Why am I on this planet? And how does my job or what I do for a living fit into my own overall life goals? How does my employer play into this? And you can see some companies who are further along are going to win the talent battle. And others are going to say, well, I'll pay you more and here's another pay bonus check and all that. We'll get some kind of, it's going to be a self-selection in the labor market. So there's going to be a sorting system in the labor market about who you're going to get. Meaning that you're going to attract people that, my mind is sort of spinning here because you're just really opening up something that's, I think, very, very inspiring, to be honest with you. This idea that, I love your language of watershed moment. I happen to agree with you. And I'm going to ask you in a minute to define what you think the organizations that are going to be the winners look like. But by coincidence, and by the time this will have posted, I have an article myself coming out in Fast Company related to why people are really leaving. And the common assumption is that people are just getting a bigger paycheck. And if they can find an employer that's going to give them a bump in pay, they're going to leave. But the research shows that it's just not true. Even though they are getting a raise, the reason that they're leaving has to do with two-thirds of the people that quit of the 65 million in America that quit in 2021 quit because of an interest in enhancing their own well-being. So I'm pretty sure you're aware of that. And I'm also very interested in your point of view in terms of when we're talking about purpose and we're talking about enhancing our focus on other stakeholders beyond shareholders. 
How are employers going to win? How are they going to win back people? Or how are they going to attract and retain the great people that they want? What will that differentiation look like to you? So one of the companies I looked at very carefully was Microsoft. And the CHRO of Microsoft, Kathleen Hogan, said to me, you don't really work for Microsoft until Microsoft works for you. Now, I just ponder that statement for a minute. There's a lot in that statement. And the argument is that how do we fit into your life and your life purpose? I think people want to live more coherent lives. This compartmentalization of life, even the phrase work-life balance. Think about that phrase, work-life, my day job. You know, And so I'm going to live my life after I come back from work. And I think people find that unacceptable. And I think as you know, there's also data showing that people are much more inspired when inspired workers are more than twice as productive as satisfied workers. So, and I want to just back up a little bit. So we've talked about employees a lot over here. Purpose has many dimensions of benefit that I had to discover because this purpose and profit question was nagging at. So the first placeholder here is that purpose energizes employees in ways that not much else does. That was the first place. I also discovered that purpose of a company can energize your customers by creating conditions for trust and belief and that there's more loyalty in the process. So you have now an energized customer base and an energized employee base. Then I discovered that some companies use their purpose as a way to energize their whole ecosystem, their suppliers, their complementary offerers, even their competitors. So I suddenly came to realize that purpose actually can be kind of like redoing your operating system for the organization. And that was kind of one piece of the puzzle. Then I discovered purpose is like a compass. It helps you get directional clarity about where are we going and what are we doing? What are we not doing? What business are we in? What business are we not in? And so to me, there was a kind of an aha moment here. So as I'm listening to you, there's two things I'd like to pin down. When you talk about these purposes that could be so inspiring and motivating and compelling that even vendor relationships are moved by it. So it's all encompassing. I'd like to ask you, can you give any examples of organizational cultures that just nail it? Do you know any offhand that you can speak to? And then I'd also like you to go back to the Microsoft point a second ago. What does that actually mean, what she was saying, in terms of Microsoft has to work for you? How does that play out? So let's start there, and then we can work our way into culture, and I can talk about several of the examples. I studied 18 companies. So for this book, I interviewed almost 250 people for this book. So I, have, I can give you lots of stories. <laughs> let's start with the, the Microsoft story. You know, the argument is that, you know, no individual is going to get inspired by some company purpose statement, right? In fact, Financial Times had a little op-ed called The Baffling Search for Purpose in Purpose Statements. <laughs> And so, first of all, purpose is not purpose. Purpose is an ideal. Now, it may be manifest and written up in a purpose, but so many companies have one and don't do much with it. So, let's also get that out of the way. So, what she was saying was that, you know, you're not going to get anybody inspired by a company purpose until they themselves are thinking about their own purpose. So, how can we as an organization get our people to think about their own purpose? I was a little confused at first. I'm like, hey, listen, that's not your business. Why shouldn't you be encouraging employees to hire a coach or do an online course on purpose activation? I mean, why would you do that? And the argument was when people start contemplating their own purpose, 
they become much more receptive to thinking about even a company having a purpose. Otherwise, if they themselves don't have a purpose orientation, they're not going to think. And then once they have their own purpose and they have a company purpose, then you look for an intersection between the two. And that can be magical. One of the people I interviewed for this book is Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And, you know, he actually talked about this because he's kind of tried to enact that in his own company. He said, there's magic when an organization can inspire people to align their own personal passion, self-understanding and desire for growth with a common organizational ambition. I interviewed somebody else, a gentleman named Matt Breitfelder, who was at BlackRock. And he said, if I'm in the zone of purpose, I'm very clear about my craft and what I'm trying to accomplish. I wake up in the morning excited to get better at it and to have impact. And I'm really receptive to my company's expression of purpose. Not only receptive to it, but I want to be part of it. I want to shape it and contribute to it. Help me understand how people can define or identify their own purpose. So are there any, I hate to ask this question the way I'm going to ask it, but are there any simple ways of identifying it? Is there a process? This is an industry out there now, by the way. Purpose activation has become an industry. And there are so many definitions of what it is. I'll just give you my favorite definition to just share that with your listeners. Thank you. William Damon, Stanford psychologist, 2008, described purpose as a stable and generalized intention to accomplish something that is at the same time meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. Meaningful for the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. Now, what does it have? It has two elements to it. One is it has a kind of element of goals, ambitions. What do I want to achieve? But it also has an idealistic cast of sense of duties in it. What is consequential for the world beyond the self? And remember, the why question forces you to ask also, it forces you to take your lens and look further out into the future. Because the existence question, unless you're really at your deathbed, is really about like, okay, where am I going? Why am I here? That's why I think it's a great question to be asking. And so there's all these exercises people do, like ask yourself about your childhood heroes, ask yourself, what did you want to be? Ask yourself about what you're passionate about. Think about what the time when you felt you were doing your best and you were in the zone. I mean, there's all kinds of direct and indirect ways in which coaches and psychologists try to help people uncover. You don't invent your purpose. You really uncover or detect your purpose. Well, there's actually a quote about that from, I think, the Buddha, which is to say that your life's purpose is to find your purpose, right? And so I'm wondering if you think, and I'm almost certain you're going to say yes emphatically, that the process of defining a purpose If people haven't done it 100% completely, they've certainly invested a lot of time and energy in it over the last two years, all over the world. Don't you think there's much greater clarity in the world in terms of what people are trying to aspire to and what they want in terms of their own personal happiness in life? I really want to agree with you. And maybe you're right. But I also see a lot of purpose confusion. I think I would agree that people are asking the question. I don't know if people have found or most people have found a satisfactory answer. I do believe for sure that we have a meaning crisis in the world. And that's leading to this kind of turmoil in the labor market. Does that mean that people are very clear? Suddenly they've got amazing clarity about purpose. I'm not so sure. I wish I could be that confident. 
So this is an audience of leaders, and I'm sure they're wondering, like, how can I help not just myself identify it without bringing consultants in and, you know, a whole organized process, which some may do, and perhaps wisely. Are there things that leaders can do, conversations they can have with their people that can at least launch their employees on this journey? to help them find their own individual purpose in the environment of where they're working. So I'll give you an example. KPMG did a very simple exercise. They asked every employee in KPMG across all offices to write down on an index card, why do I come to work? And then they had to put it on the wall on the entrance to the office. So everybody could see each other's purpose, at least work purpose. Remember, purpose is a layered construct. There is life purpose, there's career purpose, and there's job purpose, right? And then you're trying to connect your own life, career, and job purpose to the company purpose. So there are actually, it's a multi-layered idea. So as a company, as a leader, you're trying to help people discover their own purpose. You're also trying to detect and write down what the company's purpose is and make it meaningful and real for the people who are working there. Then you've got to make sure that it's being lived in the organization. So it's one thing to help employees find their purpose. And then there's another thing about helping the company find its purpose. But then the question is, how do you live the purpose? Both as an individual and as an organization. And the organizational job is much harder, actually. Because now you've got to get all the systems in the organization working from that same place of purpose. When you tell that story about the index cards and people talking about what is their purpose, if I recall correctly in your book, you said that they got 42,000 of them. And that was one of those moments where I wish you were sitting right next to me because I wanted to say to you, this is astonishing in the sense that, let me just pin it down and say, this is like an accounting consulting firm. And yet 42,000 employees said, my purpose within the context of this organization, but for me personally, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm trying to achieve. This is the influence I want to have. This is the outcome that I'm trying to achieve in my life. 42,000. That just was so wonderful to me and an exercise that I absolutely loved. I mean, have you ever recommended other organizations do this? Because I think it's one of those things that captures hearts. I loved it, Mark. And I, I you know, it's, it helps people connect to themselves in a deeper way. It helps them connect to each other in a more profound way. Because these were put out in public. They didn't say do it privately and secretly. Microsoft has a web platform called Hashtag Microsoft Lives, where people are allowed to talk about what they, you know, we've created this kind of work-life segregation. I don't really want to know who you are. I really don't. So we all become numbers and worker bees at work. We put on a mask. And then when we walk out of the office, we leave that mask. And I think its purpose allows us to imagine a more humane workplace, one in which people come to work, are inspired to be there, right? Not engaged, not satisfied, but inspired to be there. It creates a work environment where there's transparency and interaction with customers. So there's more trust and loyalty there. It's not transactional only. Right? And it's one way you also try to do that with your ecosystem and you are directionally clear about where you're going and why you're doing. And you're not confused that you have to make trade-offs and choices. Doesn't mean you don't have to make trade-offs across different stakeholders. 
So to the earlier point, shareholders want their returns. You're not going to say, you know, we're such a nice company where everybody is so nice and inspired. We're not going to make any money for your shareholders. I have to add one more thing over here tangentially. We sometimes think shareholders are some rich people who are sitting on pots of cash. Some are, but the vast majority are pensions, retirement funds. These are money, hard-earned life wages of people who expect to have some return from that so they can live comfortably in retirement. I think that most people understand when they go to work that they're trying to help the organization succeed and produce profits and meet their goals, etc. I think most people don't think when they go to work that anybody there really cares about whether they have a purpose or not. It's like, put your time in, get your job done, and that's pretty much what we expect from you. And I think that's part of where the misery is, is that we don't have enough managers, we don't have enough organizations that genuinely care to say, tell us about your life. Sit down and take a postcard out and write out, what's your purpose? Like There aren't that many organizations that think that that's valuable. And so how do you persuade CEOs and chief human resource officers, uh, on it goes, how do you convince the C-suite that truly caring about the people in a well-being standpoint, not superficially, not a, you know, an online well-being program, but truly caring about how do we make people's lives better while they're producing? Because I think that's what people are really looking for. And I think that's where the frustration is, is that I know I've got to do my job. I know I have to meet my goals, but somebody here demonstrate that I matter. Somebody demonstrate to me that what I do here contributes to something that's more meaningful than me just getting paid and you making a profit. And this is, I think, the big shift. But how do you get the world to catch on to this watershed moment that you're talking about with respect to purpose? So I must tell you that the place where I learned this most clearly and vividly was from my conversation with coach Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And if you talk to coach, you know, what you discover is that, you know, he says, we work as hard as any other team does. You know, we've got drills we do. They have drills too. You know, we have plays and they have plays too. But he's, as a coach, what you're trying to do is, and you know, we can hire players and we have salary caps and so do they. So the league, through its rules and everything else, is trying to level the playing field so everyone has a shot at winning. So what's his secret sauce? And how do you do that? And I think his argument is that, you know what, you have to unlock human potential. And the only way you unlock human potential, he calls it caring leadership. Caring leadership is where you are concerned about their well-being and, of course, their performance. This is not unconditional love over here, by the way. So let me be very clear. It's about how do you demonstrate caring while also holding people accountable to a high standard. People get confused. We have this simple two-by-two framework we teach on challenging and supporting. You can challenge somebody, but not support them. You can support them, but not challenge them. How do you do both? That's the hallmark of a caring leader who is saying, I'm going to support you and I'm going to challenge you. And what Pete says, to really support somebody, you have to understand the person in their wholeness. This is language that you, I mean, it comes as a surprise hearing it from a National Football League coach. 
But what's really interesting, and by the way, he was a college coach yes. at University of Southern California where he repeatedly won the national championship. And those players stick around for four years at best, and then they're gone, and you got to start off with a new crop of players, and you've got to cultivate that again. And then he was able to pull that off again when he moved into the NFL. So it's not that he's good with 18-year-olds. It's not that he's good with 25-year-olds. He's good with talent. He's good with his athletes. And so this caring kind of leadership that you're talking about, which, of course, is the underlying theme of this entire podcast, you make this understandable point which is that it's both. You can love your people and be demanding. In fact, you have to be demanding if you're going to do the job. The piece that's mostly missing, though, is what Carol is exhibiting, which is caring about the people in a meaningful way. There's a coach in college basketball at Villanova, Jay Wright. And in the last five years, I think he's won two national championships and it's not a huge school. There's no 30,000 students there. And they have this tournament every year with 64 teams and they play till the winner and that's the tournament that they won. And in some newspaper, might have been the Wall Street Journal, they did the same tournament. They took the 64 teams that qualified for their basketball success, and then they ran them against each other to see which team did the best academically. And Villanova won that as well. In fact, in his 18 years, he's never had a student there for four years. Some of them come for one or two years, and then you know they don't stay for four. But anybody that he has as a freshman, he has them graduate in four years, every single one of them. That's the love and demanding example. And what I find really interesting is that we love that in sports, but we haven't really valued that in business, at least not in my mind. I think the world is changing. I think, you know, we have, we have a sea change underway in how this is going. And I, and I picked on sports because I think you can learn a lot from how coaches are unlocking human potential. And, you know, the idea here is, and I'll tell you, there's a, what's the secret sauce here? Are you playing for yourself or are you playing for the team or are you playing for your coach? And, you know, the one thing we know is when you're playing for something bigger than yourself, you put a lot more of yourself into it. So we think, okay, as long as the person is playing for themselves, they'll do a really good job and I'll put a big carrot and a stick with them and the stick behind the carrot in front and they're going to really work hard. They will. Carrots and sticks work like a charm. But when you get people to take that responsibility, to feel that responsibility, that I am responsible to, I don't want to let my teammates down. It brings out a different us. And that's a huge unlock in purpose. But I want to also say, The question then is, how do you get employees there through purpose? How do you make them believe in it? How do you do that? That is the hard part. I want to talk about an organization that you mentioned in your book that's kind of failed in the sense that they once had this stunning, compelling purpose that involved truly caring about their employees. And over a 50-year history, we're really heralded as one of the best places to work routinely. One of the best places to go is a customer. It was a win-win. Shareholders were the recipients of, of great returns. And now all of a sudden at Starbucks, you have employees, workers in individual stores and individual communities that are seeking to unionize. And I'd love to know your take on what happened there. In other words, how did they lose sight of their purpose? 
in my book, I talked about Starbucks in a, in a more positive frame in terms of trying to understand how Howard Schultz came back to Starbucks. And he talked about how Starbucks seemed to have lost its soul. And then my take after that is about how Kevin Johnson took over and had to take what was founder-led and make it founder-inspired. And um, I think one thing we have to understand, I don't, I, I can't speak too much about the Starbucks because I don't have followed the latest version of what's going on right now. I do know one thing is that entire industry is being turned upside down. You mean fast food industry? Fast food industry, okay. the fast food and beverage and entertainment business. It's where you've seen the maximum turnover, right? It's a sector where people are expecting a much higher wage structure. I think we have, somehow created a, a cycle in that industry where we paid really low wages and made it then very economical and affordable for people to buy the, the products they were selling. And I think is somewhere along the way, there's a recalibration of the contract between society and these workers who feel like that's not acceptable anymore. But I can't speak to the Starbucks specific context over here to me, it's, I will say one thing, it's always a hard, hard transition when a larger-than-life founder leaves. So, you know, because the purpose of the company is wound up in the persona of that one individual. And so you've seen this across companies when Steve Jobs left Apple for the first time, you know, when Bill Gates left Microsoft for the first time, you know, when Phil Knight left Nike for the first time, you know. It's really hard for the founders to leave and also for the organization to adjust to be without the founder. And when they come back, they'll all talk in soulful terms about, oh my God, the soul of my company was getting lost. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of the whole industry, obviously exploiting people and paying them as little as possible, which still exists in not just in that industry, but in retail as well. Not all, but certainly some. With your research, what do you recommend organizations do in terms of thinking about their employees? So we're talking about people that traditionally have not made much money in fast food and retail. Are you an advocate for paying people a fair wage? Are you an advocate for having a management structure that does more to support people than just allow them to come in and do their shift and go home? Could more be done to enhance the work environment that would make people want to work there again. There's something that happened in society at large, which ties to the growing inequity. And growing inequity comes from this kind of very skewed wage structure in organizations. Peter Drucker, the late Peter Drucker, used to say, you know, he had a heuristic. He had somehow, I don't know where he got it from, but his ideal was that the C, the gap between the CEO and the lowest employee in a company should never be more than 20x. And 20 is a large multiple. So I don't know. He came up with that number saying 20 times is a decent multiple for CEOs to earn. And if you look at the multiples we are at now, we have an extremely steep pyramid structure where people at the top earn outsized returns and wages compared to the person who's way down the organization. And that creates a huge problem in all organizations. And we kind of justify it as normal. And we always say, well, it's fair market wage. Fair market wage. What do we do? We compare CEOs' wages to each other to create an arms race going upward. And we look at the people further down and say, well, you know, you're getting paid what the fair market wage is. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, do we need to rethink what is fair market wage and how we compute it? I saw uh, a couple of years ago, one organization where the unions were involved and the union was involved in a heated negotiation with this organization. And the organization kept saying, but look at the fair market wage. And the worker says, I don't care about fair market wage. I care about what is a decent living wage. And what you're calling fair market wage is not a decent living wage. We want a decent living wage because we see how others in our organization have a decent living wage, but we do not. So this is a compacted society that I think if organizations and businesses don't figure out for themselves, then society will do it for them. Do you really believe that? Because we haven't up until now. I mean, we've been watching CEO pay gradually increase to phenomenally high levels. Look at what Apple just did. And so there is sort of a belief in business that, hey, that's a tough job and those guys don't hang around very long. And so you have to pay them if you're going to get the top talent. So where's that pressure going to come back? Where's that compact in society going to come from? Well, there's increasingly concerns about new union movements, you know, and understanding where this is going to go. These kind of pressures may take some time to build, but they're definitely there. And I think we're seeing it in a variety of forms, whether it, I told you earlier, the great resignation, but we're seeing it in a range of forms in which people are going to not accept status quo where there are vast, vast differences. And whether it's going to come through union movements or more vocal statements, whether it's going to come through regulatory demands, there's going to be a lot of push over here. Who are some of the leaders, big time leaders, CEOs that you're familiar with who are anticipating this, they're not resisting it. In fact, they're on the other side of it where they're saying, hey, rather than have it be done to us, let's do it ourselves. So are there companies that are just stepping ahead and saying, this is the right thing to do and we're going to fix this and we're going to make our culture much more fair to everyone where everyone feels that they're remunerated fairly and equitably and we're not going to exploit people and we're going to make sure that we contribute well to our society and our communities. Who are the stars? Who are the emerging stars? I think that's a very good question. I don't have an easy answer for you here on this one about who is showing the way. We have a ways to go on this. This is me with my own, I would say, wishful thinking. But I think is that we have a ways to go on this. But I think the examples that even the ones that do exist are, I would say, rare and one-offs. And this is not a norm yet. You know, somewhere down the line, you should create your own list. The Ranjay Gulati Harvard list of companies with wonderful purpose, <laughs> who embody it and live it, who it's not fake or artificial. It would be really great to have someone like you who is actually calling it out and saying, these are the companies that are really, really doing it. Because I think there needs to be that nudge. There needs to be that recognition if you will. So, I've, you don't mind, I'm, I'm suggesting because you've written this wonderful book and you're advocating for purpose that it would be great to call out the people that are actually doing it. And it's a great idea, Mark. And I'll tell you why it's good, actually, is there's many reasons to do that. You know, first, it's good for investors. If, if my hypothesis is right, that purpose is good for performance and purpose builds long-term value, then purpose is a marker that investors should be using. How do you compute purpose. This is an open question. 
But if you do, my God, there are so many. Uh, one is, of course, public shaming, right? So you say who's doing it and who's not. Recognition works much better. Praise works much better than calling people out. Make it aspirational in the sense that we didn't make that list and we want to make that list. And if you can't find 100 companies, go to 50. If you can't find 50, pick the top 25. Stop at 24 if you can't find a 25th. You know what I mean? I agree. And make it so that people say, that's a list that we want to be on. And tell the story. So the reason that XYZ company is on here, let me tell you what they did. That's what really can inspire I think, is hearing the stories of companies. The language that you've used through this conversation, you said something like a sea change and a watershed moment. And and I truly believe, and I think our audience believes it too, that we're at this pivot point and we're not going back, but what we go to is up to us and how we create it. And I do think that there's resistance. I mean, you make some points about certain companies that, you know, sort of had purpose and lost it and what it did to employee morale and engagement and so forth. So you have to kind of sustain these. But at the same time, I think you have to really get some CEOs off the dime to have them realize that this is the moment for them to do this, that they can't just keep vacillating or have platitudes on the wall that no one buys into, that they really have to do the hard work and come up with something compelling and then do the hard work to help people find their purpose and then do the hard work to get managers who truly care about the success and growth and well-being of their people while also being able to deliver results. And I think these are big hurdles but it needs someone to really, you know, have the spotlight and to put the spotlight on companies that are really doing it so people can say, you know what, I'm putting my cynicism aside. We've seen companies that have this idea of a value or idea of a culture and they're really not sincere with it and everybody knows it. But here's a company that really lives it. Here's one of the things you said in your book, which I find very rare, is that companies will define their purpose and then make decisions tied to them even when it's win-lose or lose-win, right? And we need more of that. So I'm kind of on a soapbox here because I'm just simply in 100% agreement with everything that you've said tonight. Yeah. No, I, Mark, I couldn't agree with you more. I think is that, you know what? We need to be able to articulate clearly, you know, what is purpose? And I'm, on the, I'm actually on this hunt myself right now. So I'm on a large-scale project where we're trying to come out ways to measure purpose in companies and to understand. And, but remember, let's not connect purpose to too many things. Purpose is a place of intention, clarity of intention. Why am I here? Why do we exist? Another way to ask is, will the world miss us if we cease to exist? Who will miss us? Why? What role do we fulfill in the world? And from there, you then go forward. And I think is that is something to think about. So these are very important questions. And I agree with you that I wish companies and leaders will increasingly ask themselves these tough questions that is not about making trade-offs for shareholders with other stakeholders. It's making trade-offs for their own selves. Am I willing to change my compensation structure in the organization so it is seen as a bit more equitable? How is that going to play in the organization? Everyone, let's take a very quick break here and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. A quick reminder, Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership 
all around the world. MyTail also loves the upcoming Heartbeat Round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mytel.com forward slash mark. Ranjay, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition that we cleverly call the Heartbeat Round to give us a little more insight into the biggest influences in your life. I'm going to ask you a few personal questions, but these require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. So, in other words, answer them in a heartbeat. Are you game? Okay. All right. Three cultural values every organization should have. Growth mindset, humility, service. An organization anywhere in the world that you believe has established the most credible, enduring, and inspiring purpose. I would talk right now about Microsoft and Microsoft's you know, stated purpose under Satya Nadella. And I think that really, to me, is something that they have really worked hard to build and propagate. And for those who don't know it, I'll repeat it, to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. What should be required reading for every human? One of my favorite books is The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. Razor's Edge. Oh, you mentioned that in your book. Very good. Thank you. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all? To be able to say I am wrong. Quality you most admire in other people? Courage. That's hard. One major workplace change you're pretty certain is going to happen globally post-COVID? Flexible work arrangements that will include some limited forms of remote work. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Arrogance. It's the number one answer. That's really impressive. I asked a lot of the same questions to people, but that is one I ask and the answer repeatedly comes up. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. A subject you believe we'd all be wise to bone up on. Breaking the power of habits. One lesson you wish you'd learn earlier in life. You receive when you give. Of that. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Do something that's actually scary. <laughs> and finally, the trait you consider most essential to your success, your personal success to this point. Commitment and determination. Brilliant. Thank you very, very much for going through these with me. Those are great answers. You know, in our final moments here, I'd like to sort of put a framework around who's listening. And these are leaders at all levels, CEOs all the way down. And I'm wondering if you have one final piece of advice to give them in terms of what they can do with the information that we've just been discussing. I think we all should expect more of our lives. We also should expect more of our jobs, not only money, but also more meaning, more purpose. Why am I doing? What am I doing? How am I making a difference? I think all of us deep down want to make a difference in the world, a positive impact on others. There is nothing that gives most human beings more fulfillment than having a positive impact on others around them. And then we look for ways to find that. And so I think we somehow accept less than that. I think today we know that, you know, we should not accept less than that. Choose to work where you feel that you are being cared for, of course, but also that you are able to live your purpose, your own life purpose and connecting it to the organization's purpose. That's my wish for everybody. Well, on behalf of everybody, <laughs> let me just say, you know, I've said this before, but nobody benefits from this podcast more than I do. I get to have the conversations and 
This one was just so joyful. And I loved your book. I love what you're trying to advocate for. I'm a total believer. I think everyone listening in, if I can guess, is very much aligned to it. But you have a thoughtfulness in your brilliance that makes you really stand out. And I just want to compliment you for that. Harvard is very lucky to have you. How's that? Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate your saying that. It's really been a pleasure. I must say our conversation has been most illuminating to me. And so I must say, I'm grateful to you for really not only taking the time to read my book, but to really help me kind of process it myself. So talking to you took me in directions that I would not have thought of. So really appreciate your not only engaging with my research, but then to actually really take us in a direction that I think I found very, very insightful. So thank you very much. That's fantastic. That's a very high compliment. I appreciate that very much. And on behalf of my audience, thank you again and best to you, sir. Thank you very much. All my best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to ask you if you would reach out to me directly if you have any suggestions on how we can make our podcast even better. And even if you have recommendations on future guests, we would love to hear them. So please email me with any feedback whatsoever at info at markccrowley.com. Again, I would love to hear from you. As always, thank you in advance for introducing our show to your friends. We appreciate your support in that area more than you can ever know. And as always, I want to thank my great team for helping me make this happen. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm-hmm.